Good afternoon and welcome to Learn Some Series with Kevin, where we add value to people's lives, happening every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 12 on ebuzzradio.com. You can catch the Lunchtime Series on all major podcast channels and for our lunchtime marketing segment, proudly supported by Hollard Insurance, hashtag big ads for small businesses. As per usual, our marketing and communications expert, Craig Page Lee. How are you doing, Craig? Uh, Kevin, well, thank you. Yeah, gosh. Looking forward to uh, this year ending. I have to admit, it's been a long, hard slog, and I need a holiday. You know, I, I was actually talking to someone uh, this week, um, saying, you know, having this conversation, and the sentiments were, they felt that 2021 was more difficult than 2020. Um, and I, you know, I, I was thinking about it. I was like, oh, yeah, I think it may have possibly been. It's, it's because 2020, it was that whole shock. Everyone went you know, into a bit of a, a safe space for themselves. And then they realized, okay, cool, we have to get this going and we have to make it happen. And 2021 has been re-engineering our lives, basically, on how the hell to do this. So I think it has been quite the challenge for a lot of people, 2021 at least. I, I think you're actually 100% correct there. And, you know, you've also, we've all been leaning into clients, leaning into the work to ensure we've kept those relationships in place. We put in that extra bit of effort that hasn't necessarily uh, converted on the bottom line of earnings and things like that. So, you know, it's just, it's been a big slog and, and there's huge exhaustion behind it. That's that's a very valid point. Yeah, and I think, you know, that that trajectory of, of wanting to, to create this life uh, and make your make your business work has also affected everyone's um, demeanor. You know, their their attitude, their feeling, their their chutzpah, like that whole kind of driving force has been depleted. I think in a big way, um, and people are just tired. It's just they're exhausted. Everyone's exhausted. And Kevin, we we've also been faced with a couple of other you know challenges in in, in South Africa. The the insurrection incidents. The the distractions through the the um, voting that's just gone on, our constant, constant challenge, <laughs> yeah, our constant <laughs> challenge of yeah, at at ten a.m. I don't have power. This yeah. is the reality. So I will move from home to another environment so I can continue working where where there's power. And then you just constantly switching your life from one environment to the next to chase where the electricity is, and that's you know that's definitely not what we should be doing. Yeah, you know, like, because when you often take away all of that, all, all that the government's putting us through, the constantly, right? If you just took that away from how, how this country coped, uh, the economy would be in such a fantastic, stable place. Um, we would be so much uh, better off, I believe, uh, you know, in business, based on the fact that we don't have these stupid challenges coming up because people aren't great at their leadership, they just they just horrible. You know, so it's just yeah, it's it's terrible. Yeah, just to close off on that point, I think what what would be really great for us is you know if we didn't have to deal with those challenges, we could put the same energy into really growing the economy, creating new opportunities growing the workforce, um, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, we need to be able to drive our energies into positive change, not having to deal with the, the, the daily conflict of uh, how we're going to make it through the day. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I absolutely agree. So, Craig, last week we had an in-depth discussion on which companies are effectively building or adapting their organizations around the principles of diversity and inclusion. And we also learned that there are even ranking systems that measure diversity, equity, and inclusion for the, uh, the Fortune 500 companies. With that in mind, can you give the listeners uh, some key takeaways from our last week's conversation? Absolutely, Kevin. Thanks. Yes. So just, just to recap, we've addressed the, the topic of diversity inclusion in, in some detail now, starting two weeks ago, where we first investigated what, what diversity, inclusion and belonging actually means and how it impacts in the workplace. And then last week, we took a bit of a deeper look at, at what it is that organizations and leaders are actually doing to entrench DNI as part of the, the DNA of their respective organizations. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've covered a number of examples that clearly demonstrate that when diversity, equity, inclusion is part of an organization's um, DNA, Kevin, the benefits are unquestionable, not just for the organization, but definitely for the people, its people, consumers, and, and society as a whole. So going back to those key takeaway points, Kevin, I want to reference the article titled Leadership in Diversity and Inclusion, Five Lessons from Top Global Companies. Um, just as a reminder, it was published on appearingglobal.com, and you may recall the opening paragraph from the article which stated the following. Companies with gender, ethnic, and racial diversity are at least 15% more likely to experience above average financial returns. We also know that companies within the top quartile for racial and ethnic diversity are 35% more likely to do the same. So between fostering innovation and learning to properly monitor and, monitor and, and, and model their efforts, um, we've learned from these leading global companies five important lessons for organizations, Kevin. And, and these all are about how to implement diversity inclusion efforts that, that obviously have global relevance. So the five key takeaway points are as follows. Point one or lesson one. Recognizing the shift in global understanding of diversity and inclusion. So the new way of thinking about DNI focuses primarily on meeting the needs of an individual and not so much an HR-centered initiative. And, and it's not just about having diversity within a company in current times, but actually leveraging that diversity to produce better products and services for that organization. Lesson two is building an inclusive environment. Um, it's now more important than ever to create an environment where all people are encouraged to draw from their life's experiences, their perspectives, their diverse backgrounds to advance the business goals. And a critical enabler of achieving this in, in a global network environment is to entrench communication and training efforts across the organization globally. Lesson three is using multiple practices and measures. Uh, diversity and inclusion should not be treated as once-off initiatives, especially as many leaders struggle with how to manage workplace diversity. Promoting diversity and inclusion in the workplace is an iterative process and should be maintained and nurtured to be effective. Um, consider changing metrics to measure ROI based on different indicators and granular information, such as employee responses, consistent feedback, and policies, instead of just looking at turnover uh, and, and, and other irrelevant superfluous numbers. Lesson four is ensure leaders model diversity and inclusion. And for us in our discussion last week, this, this definitely was probably one of the most important points. So it's critical that senior leadership model diversity and inclusion because when leadership owns the DNI process and make themselves part of it, um, the DNI management process sets the tone for the rest of the organization to follow suit. And you know, 
then then you definitely know you're going in the right direction. And then lastly, lesson five is to recognize the connection between innovation and diversity and inclusion. And yeah, diversity and inclusion absolutely increases innovation and reduces business risk. Yeah, I mean, Greg, you know, what, what I think stands out above everything uh, in this conversation is, I mean, the obvious uh, importance of what diversity and inclusion offers, um, but also the fact that it's the above average financial returns that it offers a business. Uh, I think most people, most companies don't recognize it, they don't see it, they don't understand it, they don't see, uh, you know, they don't experience it based on the fact that they just think it's, that it's another tick box exercise. And, and yet there's so much to substantiate the evidence of how, why it works. And, and, and as it says, at minimum 15% uh, value to the bottom line. And, and if you're in the top quartile of, of ethnic diversity, 35% value to the bottom line. So, you know, there's, there's no excuse for businesses not to get it right. Yeah, absolutely. Greg, so, um, you know, in terms of, um, I know we were going to have our guest uh, join us today, but uh, things <laughs> don't always go according to plan, <laughs> as we know with uh, our wonderful power supply. Um, what do we have in store for the listeners today? Okay, so, so today we're going to cover the topic of working from home and the impact um, on corporate culture and what this actually means for organizations, Kevin, especially in terms of of the diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Um, and it goes without saying that this topic's got significant impact on organizations as they they constantly find themselves in the sort of deer-in-the-headlight moment, uh, grappling with a strong request from many staff to, to stay at home and extend the work-from-home options, while on the other hand, trying to mobilize staff to get back into the organization on a full-time basis. And, and the latter being, being a preference for many of these, these larger global businesses where Google itself has, you know, it had tried to set a, a deadline date for the end of June this year to get their staff back, but you know, they, they're still grappling with, with that reality. Yeah, I mean, and the likes of Twitter, I remember, and I'm speaking under correction, Twitter actually went online and said that, you know, everyone can start working from home. So, you know, everyone has a very different take. Um, even with these these big, large global companies, you're kind of going, is it a complete remote work thing? Is it a blended thing? Um, like, I think that it's, it's quite up in the air at the moment. Yeah, I think the, the, the hybrid space is, is really the, the area that's going to be around for, for quite a while still. But um, organizations are still grappling on how to deal with that. And I think we're going to start addressing, addressing some of that in our chat this morning. So, so with it, what is the real impact on corporate culture by working from home? And, and I mean, is there, is there even such a thing? <laughs> you have a corporate culture if you're working from home? And, and what can you tell us about that statement? Yeah, yeah. We're working from home, two, two different concepts, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it is probably the biggest uh, challenge that organizations are faced with currently, Kevin. But, but before I expand on that, what I want to do is quickly just set some context on the factors that actually affect organizational culture. So there's a really great, um, easy to read uh, and, and quite informative educational portal called Management Study guide educational portal and it really addresses the topic of organizational culture quite clearly and and there's a there's a wonderful paragraph that really stood out for me when when i was reading uh, um, some of the content there and it, the opening line reads as follows an organization is nothing but a common platform where individuals from different backgrounds come together and work as a collective 
unit to achieve certain objectives and targets. An organization consists of individuals with different specializations, educational qualifications, and work experiences, all working towards a common goal. Here, the people are termed as employees. So it, it, it threw out a couple of, of really interesting statements, which, which I wanted to look at and just dissect a little bit here. So the first here is, is nothing but a common platform. So, you know, if, if that's what it is, who or what holds the platform together, Kevin, and, and what is a common platform when people are operating from remote locations? The other piece there is individuals from different backgrounds. And again, any organizational structure to embrace diversity and inclusion will most definitely have individuals from a broad spectrum of backgrounds. But again, how do you manage them and create a platform for growth and development when, when the people are operating from different locations and environments? The third segment that I, that I pulled out there was come together and work as a collective unit. So in addition to the previous point, how do you actually create a collective unit, a whole, when people are operating from remote locations? The, the next segment there was, was achieve certain objectives and targets. So yes, a well-structured, highly respecting organization should be able to achieve this even when their people are operating from, from remote locations. But again, it, it's, it's the specific of that kind of organization. Then the next one's quite a long one. It's that consisting of individuals with different specializations, educational qualities, and, and experiences. And again, so if, yeah, in addition to the previous point, if you have that well-structured organization, yes, you should be able to ensure that consistency of deliverable and that these variables are really taken into account when operating from remote locations. And then the last point there was all working towards a common goal. And again, a, a well-led organization should be able to achieve this even when people are working from remote locations. But, but what's interesting for me here is in dissecting those points, um, not everybody can get 100% of them right all of the time. And actually, it's near impossible when people are working and operating from remote locations, especially if those organizations have not been created and built around this reality, Kevin. And, and it's clear to see that working from home impacts directly on at least 50% of those segments that I, that I broke down on in defining what an organization is. And this is all the more reason to investigate how do you build that culture that holds the organization together, irrespective where the staff actually operate from. You know, it's interesting, Craig, and I, and I suppose that, you know, um, my fiance works, has been, has worked uh, for a long time um, for Accenture um, and has now moved subsequently to Anglo. Um, but when you, you know, from the outside, when you look at uh, the, the way that they operate, um, you know, it's very possible for people to, to be highly successful in a very remote location because he works with people from Brazil to Australia to the UK and they're on and India and they're on call, you know, all the time with each other. They just schedule life and meetings according to the time, time zones. Um, but I think it also speaks largely to depending on what market, uh, you know, what market it, um, the the business is in, um, and what kind of business it is for that to also be possible. Because I don't, you know, I don't think remote working is possible for everything and everyone. Yeah. Um, and um, but yet, back to the culture, the the culture conversation. Um, they have a very um, obvious culture of output versus input. 
So they kind of go, this is what the output is. Make sure we get into that the whole time. So they drive. They really don't, they don't micromanage a process. They don't like to micro. They have a hell of a lot of, a lot of meetings. But the culture that, you know, of, of what I've already seen from consulting firms is uh, very, very possible at an international scale. So it's, it's very interesting to kind of hear, you know, what, what is a culture? Yeah, and yeah, but you make a you make a good point there, Kevin, because there are many big global organizations that operate on a twenty four hour basis around the world. You know, when the sun sets in the most eastern part of the world to when it sets in the west. You know, there, there's a continuum of delivery across the world in real time with those organizations, and their their different local head offices are all dialed in to to that understanding, and and wow. they they obviously they've got longevity and 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 time behind them to have inculcated that kind of culture that holds the organization together. And and when you understand what the output is and what it means to the business, you're definitely in a better position in being able to manage it re- remotely. Um, and yes, the big mining houses are, are most definitely in that space. There's no there's no doubt about it. They, they are scattered in as disparate as, as you could be across the planet. Um, and and they've, they've spent many decades of, as I say, inculcating the, the strength of their culture to hold that organization together. They obviously have some other channel uh, challenges in the in the DNI space at times and things like that. But but most definitely, they they've got a good track record of 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 how to operate in in a remote environment. And then you mentioned the other one for me, which 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 is absolutely spot on. Is is that the the big consulting firms, their businesses are set up to operate remotely in an outbound uh, uh, manner. So yeah, they they themselves have are well practiced at this. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's what makes it so interesting to have this conversation because I think that's where people are still, I mean, South Africa specifically, that we used to climbing in the car and driving to your work and you're spending two hours driving to Santon and then you're two hours back in the traffic and and now all of that potentially has changed for um, businesses. And I think, you know, one of the things that come to mind is, you know, um, big, like Accenture, for example, um, they went and spent all that money in Midrand to build that company, you know, uh, the, the actual building. And they have this beautiful, and I've seen, uh, been inside the building as well, and it's it's a magnificent building. And you kind of go, okay, but now what if 90% of these people are now working at home? What yeah. do you do with the building, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think I think for me that that's an area I'd love to get the opportunity to go do a master's or PhD and because it, it ties back into my architectural background is, is really to get to understand what the impact on the built environment is. Firstly, what, what was the impact on the built environment by just producing, you know, multi-story high rises and large landmass buildings covering the planet who now, you know, effectively in some instances, there's buildings in, in Santon here that are, that are 75% unoccupied. And they've been put up by listed entities. What is that doing to the bottom line? Um, and, and you know, when, when are organizations ever going to be able to refill those buildings? There are a couple of hundred thousand square meters of space in the Santon CBD alone that are unoccupied at the moment. So, yes, very valid point. The, the, the other piece I want to just pick up on, though, is that the, the challenge here is not for you and me who are able to get in the car to drive somewhere. Is is, is actually for for the other echelons of of the workforce lower down the ranks and in the income brackets and 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 in in the equity space, the challenge that they've had to deal with because 
yeah. they can't work from home. They don't have the infrastructure to make it easy for them to, to work from home. So, yeah, we've got a huge disparity in the capability and enablement and infrastructure that exists in one neighborhood to the ne- next. So, you know, there in itself is a huge challenge of what that means in the culture of an organization. And there are one or two little key points that I've been able to pull out that actually talks to some of that that, that I want to share today, Kevin. Yeah, I mean, on that equity, like if they don't have the, the infrastructure to, to sort of uh, just be um, working from home, they also don't have power half the time because we don't, we can't supply that either. You know, right. like, how much can you throw at the, this country all at once? You know, it's like, yeah. it's insane. Yeah. But I mean, you, earlier you mentioned culture that holds the organization together. What do you mean by this, Craig? Yeah, I, I have used the term uh, a few times, and 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 it, it's, an, it's an important phrase, Kevin. So, still referencing the the management study guide educational portal, we learned that, and to quote again, another another great uh, piece is that the attitudes, traits, and behavioral patterns which govern the way individuals interact with each other is termed as culture. And culture is something which one inherits from inherits from your ancestors, and it helps in distinguishing one individual from another. So. Yeah, Kevin, we're all individuals. We all behave in a different way. And, and as such as our personality traits define us one from the next person. And, and in essence, there's actually no difference in, in one organization being defined versus another organization, each having their own beliefs, their own values, their own policies, their own rules and guidelines, which make up that organization's identity. So in the same way that our individual behavior impacts on the relationship we have with others, organizations' culture directly impacts on the employees and the relationship they have with themselves and within the organization. And and it's this culture and the practices that guide and inform the actions of the team members that I refer to as, as sort of that glue that holds the organization together. Yeah. But in closing on that point on, on the organizational culture, Kevin, I think it's important to note that irrespective of the differences in, in culture within organizations, they, they're in essence two broad types of, of organizational culture. And managing, uh, at least referencing management guide, um, educational portal one, one last time, we note those two differences as follows. One is strong organizational culture, which refers to a situation where the employees adjust well, are respected in the organization, they respect the policies and adhere to the guidelines. And in such a culture, people enjoy working and take every assignment as a new learning, and they try and gain as much as they can from it, and they accept their roles and responsibilities willingly, because again, there's a shared vision and a common common viewpoint. Whereas on the other side, in the weak culture, it's, it's very much around a culture where individuals accept their responsibilities out of fear and, and out of harsh policies. Um, employees in these conditions do things out of compulsion and they treat their organizations as a mere source of earning money and they never get attached to it. So it goes without saying that it's essential for leadership to drive strong organizational culture, especially when the dynamics of work, uh, of remote work and disconnected workforces are easy distractions, Kevin. And, and, and effective communication plays a hugely important role in driving this positive culture across the organization. Um, and, and when it's not in place, we often see quite autocratic and dictatorial kinds of leadership styles being implemented. And, and it's, it's much easier to, to lead by fear and use rigid and unfair policies when you're disconnected when, from your workforce than it is to drive an inclusive, collective, engaging culture. 
Yeah, absolutely, Craig. So we've we've learned a bit about what makes an organization and how culture holds an organization uh, organization together. But how did the COVID pandemic impact our uh, on organizational culture? What what impact did it have? Yeah, it did, and still is having an impact, Kevin. And yeah, considering that that some some organizations are, are still hamstrung by the various levels of control and legislative mandates across the world and whether they can bring their entire staff back to the office or whether they still need to manage this sort of hybrid model. The question is perfectly addressed in, in a great article, how have organizational cultures shifted during COVID-19 pandemic and what might need to change back? It was produced by a collective of seven individuals and published on the 7th of July this year, so quite current. And the article's found on, on the cmrberkeley.edu sites, which is California Management Review, and, and, and California Management Review is, is the Berkeley House's premier management journal and a really great source of information. So the article introduces us to, to the Berkeley Sanford Silver Lining Study, which aimed to identify patterns of culture change across a diverse range of organizations. And the study employed a, an interesting methodology where Half the respondents were randomly assigned in any of the given organizations to assess the culture that existed before the pandemic, and, and the other half were assigned to look at the, the culture changes post the pandemic. And the team were able to identify key changes in, in, in culture resulting from the pandemic. The team also set about assessing the culture within those identified organizations before the onset of COVID, and then again, 18 months into the pandemic and there were some really interesting uh, insights that came about on, on, on how people actually experienced um, any cultural changes during, during COVID. So I just want to give some context there. There were 2,771 individuals that, that were respondents from over 40 organizations. And a key point to note here is that the sample is not nationally representative. It's, it's purely focused for the USA in a particular region. But that said, it mostly includes the alumni of the two universities, Stanford Berkeley, um, represented in, in, in the authorship team. And, and it does however, include organizations across the broad spectrum of sectors, such as healthcare, technology, finance, consulting, consumer price goods. And it focused on individuals from different hierarchical levels um, at, at their various career stages. So it's important. It got quite a nice broad width and depth in, into those organizations. So take out here is three key themes emerged from the study. And the first pattern there was that COVID pandemic led organizations to emphasize certain cultural elements and to downplay others. And in, in that process, five cultural elements that placed greater emphasis on were flexibility, transparency, supportiveness, decisiveness, and confronting conflict. The five cultural elements that actually were downplayed in, in, in these organizations in response to the pandemic were customer orientation, individualism, detail orientation, results orientation, and collaboration. And quite, quite an interesting mix there because in both spheres, they would definitely have positive and negative impacts on the organization. But the key, the key takeout, and to quote the, the report there, Kevin, is that organizational cultures in the pandemic era have generally shifted away from high performance orientation to ones that prize empathy, understanding, and mutual support. And, and that's a powerful place for organizations to be actually. 
The, the second pattern that emerged there was when looking beyond those sort of high cultural level attributes, um, it was noted that, that, that employees experienced some form of cultural changes positively and others quite negatively. And, and it picked up on a, a topic model that was applied to those open-ended text uh, responses to identify if there were any salient cultural themes that came out of the, the, the um, review. And the topics were compared with respondents reported whether they experienced change as positive or negative. And, and what's quite alarming for me here is the only topic that was associated with positive experience was that of regular leadership communication, which is great. It's, it's, a, it's, it's absolutely what we'd expect, but there was only really one theme that came out as positive. There were a couple that were actually negative and, and flexibility did not merge as, as positive association, possibly because some of the advantages like no need to commute or offset by some of the negative advantages like working from home, uh, no dedicated office space and things like that. So, you know, there, 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 there was a balancing out there. But interestingly, again, there's topics relating to accessing resources, the way uh, employers were communicated with and collaborated, cultural change was associated with net negative experience. The takeout here is that even if the organizations managed to, manage to transition to a remote workforce without expecting significant productivity decrease, the shift was negative for many staff with potential negatively impacting on the culture of the organization and as such potentially on, on, on the bottom line. The third pattern to emerge noted that different employee groups had very different experiences due to the organizational change. And I think this is something we started picking up on, on earlier, because if you look at this, the specific point was made that non-white participants actually reported to having more negative experience of the pandemic and felt less optimistic about the future relative to the white participants. And, and one can read in a, a whole host of, of, of reasons why that may be. Now, one of the possible explanations there is that non-white participants saw the organization culture post the pandemic as less transparent to what the white participants responded. Um, yeah, so, so the study also highlighted the following merchant trends that leaders should deliberately evaluate which cultural adaptations have emerged in the organization since the pandemic, and that can be sourced as a strength for innovation in the future. But they also need to critically examine which cultural elements have been suppressed during the pandemic and what needs to be done to reinforce these to retain its competitive edge. So again, looking at the positives and negatives and, and you know, to, to navigate those choices, leaderships need to, to really understand the cultural maps of the organizations. They need to do more surveys. They need to do more analysis of all the internal behavioral aspects, digital trace data, so they can actually provide real-time understanding to understand who was in the organization, who was at the organization, what are the conversations, and, and what has actually been said into the external uh, platform through likes of social media. But closing on that point, I think it's, it's important to, to understand this quote from the, the study. During the prolonged COVID-19 crisis, leaders understandably shifted their focus away from culture to more pressing questions such as stabilizing support chains and implementing health and safety protocols. Successfully emerging from the crisis will, in our view, require leaders to bring back culture to the center of their focus. And, and that's, that's an incredibly powerful statement to end on because there were other immediate needs that they had to focus on to keep the business on track and running and, and provide the back-end support, now culture needs to come back into, into the heart of the organization. 
Yeah, and Craig, you know, I think, you know, when, when you say deliberately evaluate, I think uh, part and parcel of, of, of shifting and evolving into the future of, of, of work life uh, and, and what the future of work looks like um, is really considering this and, and doing it deliberately. You know, if we if we look at the the supporting stats on on what diversity and inclusion does for your business, you know, um, taking the time to actively get involved with your 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 business culture, uh, I think you know is uh, essentially you know it's um, I think so. Who said it the other day? Was it on this show or some show that? Um, uh, very often, a business will will dictate what the country looks like, you know. Um, and if we shift that that mentality around, uh, you know, we're just doing a tick box exercise to actually getting involved with what culture looks like and how to do it better. Um, yeah, I think that will speak to how businesses do it better in in, in a country and how a country then does it better. Yeah, we, we definitely touched on that in, in our previous discussion where you, know, you you start looking at the equity ratios that are prerequisite in being able to operate in our country specifically. And and those in many instances are just tick boxes. It's, it's geographic demographic representation within an organization as opposed to the deep dive to to really bring that inclusion belonging together to to work towards that common goal goal where everybody is a contributor, where your differences are acknowledged, where yeah. you genuinely respect and participate with the person next to you who is of a different background, color, creed, race, gender, sex, whatever it may be. So, Craig, I mean, as we near to the end of the show today, what are the summary key points that we have for the listeners? Yeah, Kevin, there are quite a quite a big article that I came across um, references these really, really succinctly. And it's an article titled, Don't Let Hybrid Work Set Back Your DEI Efforts. It was published by Alexandra Samuel and Tala Robertson on, on hbr.org, um, the Harvest Business Review, and it was under the diversity inclusion section. It was published as recently as as October 13 this year. And what, what was really interesting, so I, I read up on, on the two authors, and they, they're both specialists in understanding how organizations have navigated the challenge. And as such, they've developed five key questions to help organizations ensure that they have the right metrics in place so that they can align the diversity, equity, inclusion goals with this new model of hybrid work and and, and ensure that, that it is part and parcel of, of the work from home, work from office uh, uh, strategy for those organizations. So uh, as I mentioned, a really informative and compelling read with, with some incredibly valid points. So let me, let me share these with you. So it starts, it says, hybrid work is likely to accelerate diversity and equity challenges, obviously, and gains that we saw during the era of remote work. By measuring five key aspects of hybrid workplace, who's spending time work at the office uh, who's spending time working at the office versus at home yeah who gets to choose when to be in the office who gets promoted how remote management tactics are used and the last point is who is engaged talent managers can ensure that career advancement employees benefit accrue equitably so the five questions that they actually ask can go into a deep dive around those particular points and and let's start with the first one 
who's spending more time at the office and who's spending more time at home? And here the question notes that many organizations have, have review remuneration around promotion, staff attrition, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's, that's been put in place to ensure equity across the different demographics. But actually remote work now, Kevin, is really an important metric and variable in deciding who gets promoted or who gets salary increases. And the authors advise here that, that organizations should talk, start with a baseline of data that tells you which employees are working remotely and how much, both before and during the pandemic, and then track how much time the different groups of workers are now spending in or out of the office as the workplace reopens. And, and through that, if you spot any demographic differences on who's spending time at the office or not, you need to be very aware of, of how the time is spent and, and how that is actually shaping promotion. Because again, as I mentioned earlier, if you look at our, our situation in South Africa, there, there's a lot more people spending time at home travel issues, uh, you know, the, the restrictions we've had are quite rigid. What is happening to those folk? Are they, are they falling off the spectrum? Are they not being seen? Or are they genuinely being included in the opportunity for promotions, salary increases, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. The question two is, who gets to choose when to be at the office? And this is quite an interesting one because it calls for an understanding on whether scheduling flexibility is actually evenly distributed or enjoyed by some demographic groups more than the other. Um, and, and, and I think it's a very valid statement for South Africa. In many workplaces, this disparity actually appears to be role-based. And here the authors advise that it actually may make sense to let some employees pick their days in the office randomly, while others may need to work to a predetermined schedule. And obviously that's, that's in many instances generated around what the actual output is if you're in a call center and, and the likes, you know, your, your schedule dictates that. So here is, is to make sure the differences aren't biased against gender, race, et cetera, and understand why employees get to choose whether and when to remote, work remotely. The third, the third question here is how does time in the office shape the path to promotion? And here, this measurement is, is critical, Kevin, because there's a risk in the relationship between hybrid work and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and it comes from the potential for time in or away from the office to affect the path for promotion. And, and definitely, you and know, I picked up on that. So if people who spend more time in the office with the bosses, in the face of the bosses, advance faster, then demographic differences who are in the office could translate into difference in who's rewarded. And, and again, many demographic groups don't get the benefit of being in the office as much as they would like to be, and therefore they could be potentially on the negative side of, of, of remuneration and reward. And, and in one study, Kevin, uh, researchers established that remote workers and offered workers who were promoted at the same rate but found that the remote worker salaries grew more slowly than office workers. And that's, that's a very important point to note. Yeah. That said, remote work might also instead be a professional advantage rather than a disadvantage. And this was verified in, in, in a survey conducted as part of Alexander, one of the, the authors of the, of, of the article in, in research who was doing for her book, Remote Inc., which is co-authored with Robert Posen. And it was determined that more than half of long-term workers, remote workers, reported that they were more productive at home than they were at the office. And if working remotely makes employees more productive, well, obviously that can improve the bottom line for the organization, but definitely lead to advancement in higher earnings for the respective individuals themselves. Question four is how are remote 
management tactics used. And and this is this is an interesting one. And it highlights a contentious, a very contentious, contentious point actually. And that that's the one of of sort of hyper tracking and intense scrutiny of the remote workforce. And you know that that can just come around filling your day with online meetings and checking keyboard logins and the likes there. And and many companies have turned these key login and enforced logins and constant video meetings as a way to ensure that the workers are actually really at their desk. And, and this monitoring actually, Kevin, could lower productivity. It's definitely got a, a an impact on, on eroding trust and employee engagement as well. And here the authors note that because we know both employee surveillance and pressure to prove to a manager that the employee is at work varies by race and gender. We really need to be concerned about how these practices actually affect productivity and inclusivity, inclusive, inclusive, gosh, let me try that again, inclusivity of a hybrid workforce. And the final question, quite, quite, a, quite a long one, is how does time in or out of the office predict employee engagement and retention? And here we learn that that for some employees, time out of the office actually increases their professional engagement because without the interruptions and distractions of the workforce, they're able to focus and, and obviously focus on the stuff you're passionate about and they feel like they're actually making a significant contribution to the business. Whereas on the other hand, time in the office for some employees is a major driver of job satisfaction because it gives them that structure and connection to the organization. And a key challenge is, is, is creating that level playing field where the demographic differences are understood and managed around who actually thrives in or out of the workplace. Given to gauge this, the, the authors recommend, you know, including measures of well-being, satisfaction, retention in employee surveys, and compare the results of, of that demographic data and time in and out of the workplace, and then make adjustments to, to the respective policies and programs. But a, a, a caution here is an area to be aware of is, is that systemic differences in how much time different groups of employees choose to spend at the office is you can actually then look at whether you need to adapt your workplace to be more inclusive or change how advancement occurs. And the closing point here is that without such measurements being in place, it's difficult to ensure that marginalized groups are supported by and not further disenfranchised by the hybrid workforce, Kevin. Great. And you know what's interesting? I think, you know, you, you uh, on, on point number four, you also mentioned that uh, the management tactics. And I, <laughs> the first thing that occurs to me is like, if you are a manager and you can't trust the people you work with, you have more problems than you think you have. Um, you know, like, let's just start with trust, you know, like, uh, if, if you can't even do that, and you're micromanaging a process, like you're, you've employed the wrong person. You yep. don't have a relationship with them, you know. So then, as you know, you have to get back to okay. So how are we recruiting people, and how is that set up? Because uh, th that is a whole other different conversation. I'm like, how do you measure that? What are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Yeah, and and as as we mentioned, you know, at, at, at the erosion of trust absolutely leads to disengagement with the organization. There's no doubt about that. And that's that's a that's a, a major risk for, for any organization. But then like culture just goes right out the window. You know, Correct. you might not even think about culture if you haven't got trust with someone. So it's like, yeah, it's uh, it's and it's funny how all of it just works together. You know, if you're not if you're not asking the next level of questions, you, you you're debilitating your own business. Correct. So, Craig, finally, what are we lined up for next week's show? Okay, so so we have booked um, uh, our two guests for next week, Pride and Letsy from, from Ground Up Coffee, amazing business. They, they'll they be joining us as special guests on the show and just you know, 
for, for our listeners, again, Pride is the founder of Ground Up Coffee, which was one of the small businesses that was selected to pos- participate in, in the Hollard Insurance Big Ads for Small Business campaign. And, yeah, it'd be great to hear about their journey, the challenges that they've been faced with, and what are the learnings they can bring to the table for other young entrepreneurs. So, yeah, another exciting conversation with our guests next week. Absolutely, yeah. So, guys, if you want to check it out, it happens every Thursday at 12 o'clock uh, right here on ebersradio.com and also on uh, the Lunchtime series. You can check out the podcast on all the, the major podcast channels um, and every every Thursday at 12 o'clock. So, join us. Listen up. And, uh, Craig, I look forward to next week. Yeah, so do I. Thanks, Kevin. Have a good week ahead. You too. Chat to you soon. Ciao. Thanks. Ciao.